0: Warm, beautiful day. I actually put my air conditioner on driving over here. And we are on chapter 40. Do you guys feel really smart? Chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah. I'm glad to be here. I'm Lynn Kitchens and I'll be here for a while talking about the next few chapters in Isaiah. The first... Forty chapters dealt with God's judgment on a rebellious nation of Israel. We had little snippets of hope and his love in there, but a lot about judgment. The rest of the book of Isaiah is about the comfort of God. And I really feel like uh, not only were his words a comfort to Judah, we can take them as comfort in our lives as well. And that's my hope, especially when we feel captured by our trials and by suffering that's going on in our lives. Uh, Recently, we got to have a new friend from China. He's a 25-year-old college student, never been to America, got to stay with us a little while. It was so fun to have uh, this young godly man stay in our home who had never been in America before. And so it was kind of a fun adventure. One day, for some reason, in the middle of the day, a possum was walking outside the window. And he, like, freaked out. You know, what is it? And ran out there. And he took probably 50 pictures on his camera. And I followed him. And he kept saying, is it a mouse? (laughs) And I thought, I hope not. I know things are big in Texas, but I don't think so. He loved it, followed that around. He kept saying it's so snuggly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One night Ted brought him home and the stars in Alito, you can see the stars pretty well. And I heard him yelling outside the window. Wow, what is that? And he was looking up at the stars. And it was so neat because I noticed the rest of the time he was with us, he had taken a chair outside and set it on the edge of a hill. And after we would go to bed, he would go sit and worship God and look at the stars. Uh, One thing that was funny to us was uh, he couldn't understand America's fascination with cheese. He said, now, if I bite into this, it's like I'm just chewing fat. started realizing you're sort of right because uh... (laughs) but the funniest thing was so Ted decides to explain everything to him as he's trying to leave the table Ted sets out milk cream butter and then cheese and talks through the process of how we come to this it didn't matter to him he did not want to eat this this piece of orange fat as he called it Anyway, I I said to him one day, we were standing in the kitchen by the the countertop, and I said, how did you come to know Christ uh, in China as a young man? And he said, well, uh, it was really a touching story. It made me cry, but I'll try not to. But he grew up in a home, and he would say, many of the Chinese homes, you have your one child, you have high expectations, you're pretty demanding, you're... They start school at age two. They don't really play much. And uh, he's really, really smart. And his parents, he felt uh, very pushed and not nurtured. Uh, In some ways, uh, lived a very hurt childhood. So then I said, well, but what was it like to go to school? And then the story got worse because he had to walk to school and there was a group of bullies who liked to make fun of him and waited for him on his way to school. And they would hit him and hurt him and mock him. And on his way home, they would do the same thing. And I was like, why didn't you tell your teacher? And he said, you just didn't tell anyone those things. And so as he grew up, he had nowhere to go with the hurt that was in his heart. And so he decided, maybe there's a God who would want to comfort me maybe there's a God that I could go to. And so he decided, he couldn't find that in any of the gods he'd ever heard about, so he decided to study the Christian God. And I said, how did you do that? He said, I went to the library, and he took out books on the Christian God, and he learned that our God is a God of love and comfort, and that is who he turned to. And God spoke to his heart and revealed himself to this young Chinese man. And that's his God of comfort still to this day because he said he still wrestles through a lot of those emotions. When we look in the book of Isaiah, we know our God is that God who desires to comfort and love us. And today we are going to find out that Judah is in Babylon, and they are captured literally and emotionally. And Deb taught us uh, last week that because of Judah's king Hezekiah praying that Assyria would not overcome Judah, Assyria did not overcome Judah. But we also learned how because afterwards King Hezekiah, actually it was really beforehand, But he took Babylonians through the palaces and flaunted off the treasures as if they were his own. And so God said, Assyria won't defeat you, but after you're dead, Hezekiah, Babylon will. And it's pretty sad because Hezekiah thinks to himself, that's okay, I won't be around. Kind of a sad, sad statement. So it was true, as Hezekiah grew older... Babylonian power grew. In fact, it grew so great that they overcame the Assyrians. And so in 605 B.C., Judah fell under the power of Babylon and the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he began to come to Jerusalem and steal... The royal uh, children, just as Hezekiah was told, and they became his slaves. And then finally, in 586 B.C., Babylon came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and took just about everybody else with them. So the 70 years of Babylonian captivity began with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and lasted until 516 BC. So these chapters, including what you read for your homework, these chapters are about the Babylonian captivity. But when Isaiah wrote these chapters, it would be over a hundred years before it happened. So we just have to keep that in mind as we're reading. These are prophecies that he's speaking to Israel. And why does he do it? He wants them to know everything about him and them and their relationship before the captivity happens. It's a sign of God's great love to his children. So he's speaking these words of comfort to them before they are even in Babylon. It made me think about... I know we've all seen this where we see a little child fall and they're hurt and they're crying and a good parent runs over and bends down and puts their arm around their child and says, everything is going to be okay. And the child jumps up and runs on because they've been comforted in their hearts. And that is God's plan through Isaiah to comfort Judah with these words he is speaking, like the loving Father that he is. He will run to Judah. He will bend down. He will put his arm around him, and he whispers in his ear, I know, I know that you've fallen. I know that you're hurting. But everything's going to be all right. I won't abandon you. I love you. I call you my own. I will fulfill every promise I told you, beginning with your father Abraham. These are the words God speaks as he bends over Judah, warning them about the captivity to come. He's not only whispering, though, about Judah's future deliverance from Babylon, he's also whispering about Israel's future deliverance from all of their woes when Israel's true deliverer, Jesus Christ, will be born in Bethlehem and when he will reign at his second coming in Jerusalem during the millennium. So Isaiah is looking forward to Judah's return from the Babylonian captivity and then to the entire nation's restoration in the millennial reign at the second coming of Christ. So the promises that we're going to be reading will be partially fulfilled when God delivers Judah from Babylon, and completely fulfilled when God delivers Israel through Jesus Christ in the Millennium Kingdom. Both of these uh, events are woven into all the chapters that you just have been reading, and they're going to be woven in the next ones that we talk about. And Vanita mentioned them, they're the already but not yet prophecies. Already, when He will and He did deliver Judah from Babylon, Not yet, when he's about to deliver the remnant of Israel in the millennial kingdom as they reign with him. So I wanted to take a minute. We're going to put this up on the screen. You might even want to take out this sheet. We are just going to put on our thinking caps. Unfortunately, when Deb was going to go over this, no one was here because it was icy. So I just want us to know, where are those... um, Not yet fulfilled prophecy is going to happen, and why, and how did Israel get there? So we're going to talk through this real quickly, but I really think it will help us in the weeks ahead to really be able to uh, categorize what's going on here. So let's start at the beginning. We've got the church age. That began where? We see the cross. That began after Jesus ascended, and he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, To live in hearts for the first time. And that's when the church was born. We became the temple of God. The group of believers, the body of Christ is the church. But we believe... So we're still in that church age right there. But you'll see the rapture at the end of that with the arrow pointing up. We believe that before tribulation comes to the earth, all believers will meet with Christ... In the air, this is known as the rapture, when Jesus comes to gather his own, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then any believers alive at the time will rise next. Now, if you're like me, you think, wait a minute, the dead in Christ, does that mean people we know who have died, or when we die, we are just lying in the ground waiting for the rapture? We know that's not true. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And think about the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, those that have died are in the presence of Christ in some kind of temporary body. But during the rapture, they will come in the clouds with Jesus. Their dead bodies will rise. Just as the scripture taught us, we will resurrect like Jesus did. And then anybody who's alive at that time will rise. And you can see there, the entire church meets with Christ and celebrates. And this is when we believe the marriage supper of the Lamb, the rewards to His faithful. We believe this is the time that that will happen. Here's why we believe that. I put two verses down. Don't read them right now, because then your brain will start doing this and... You can read them later. Two main passages, the first two verses on your verse sheet, you can read later. Why uh, Christ Chapel and many other people believe this is how the rapture is going to take place. And here's another reason. We also believe, not only do scriptures point to it, but we believe that it represents the character of God. When God was going to destroy the earth during the time of Noah, what did he do with righteous Noah and his family? Lifted them off the earth. When he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what did God do with Lot and his family? Removed them before he destroyed it. So these are the reasons we believe that scriptures point to the rapture. Okay, 70 years of great tribulation on the earth. The church has been removed. The last three years of this tribulation is called the Day of the Lord. You might might want to make some notes on this while we're going through this. And we all have heard about these years of tribulation, a time of war, apostasy, the Antichrist, a satanic world system, natural disasters, not a good time. What do you think happens to Israel during those tribulation times? Some of them, the remnant, begin to understand Jesus is the Messiah that we were waiting on. Many Jewish people will come to Christ during the tribulation and they're the ones we read about when it says persevere, persevere. They have to live through that tribulation. And they do. And Gentiles will come to Christ also at the same time. But one purpose of the tribulation is to purge a saved remnant from stubborn Israel. And that's when it will happen. This brings us to the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom. This is when Christ returns with the saints that he has met up with in the clouds originally. We return with him. Battle of Armageddon, Christ is the victor, Um, the end of the tribulation, and it marks the beginning of Christ ruling on his glorious throne in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. So the righteous remnant, along with everyone else, all the saints who died earlier, will be serving Jesus for 1,000 years. These are the glory days that Isaiah is telling about and prophesying about in his book. These are the days when Israel is functioning as it was created to live and um, proclaiming who Jesus really is. This is the days when Judah and Israel get to do that around their king. They realize Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And they worship him during that time. Okay, here's another interesting fact. During this time, Satan will be bound. He will have no power. His hands will be tied. And the reason he's bound here is to show the evil of man's heart. And here's what I mean by that. Because even though Jesus Christ himself is on the throne, and Satan has his hands tied, there will be... People in the millennium who rebel against Jesus, the King of Kings. And we want to say, who are these crazy people? It's, it's almost impossible for us to believe. So who could they be? Well, when Christ returns to begin the millennium, remember, people have come to Christ in the tribulation. When he returns, those people are living human beings. So they enter the millennial reign along with those of us, possibly, who have already been died physically and return. But the people that are still alive at the return of Christ that know Christ and have called out his name will move into the millennium. That's kind of a crazy thing to think about. But then you might realize, so who is it who is going to rebel eventually against Jesus on his throne? the children of the people that were alive that went into the tribulation. And so towards the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed. Those people who rebel against the king of kings will finally and forever be judged along with everyone else who has denied the name of Jesus Christ in the great white throne judgment at the end of that 1,000 years. And then we have a new heaven and a new earth, Satan eternally bound with all his companions and all those who have refused to speak the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior. The reason I wanted to go through that was so we could get a feel for when this remnant uh, would begin to really turn to Christ, during the tribulation, and that when we read about Isaiah talking about Israel around the throne and um, living out what God had planned for them, that's going to be happening in the millennial kingdom, that remnant of Israel. Are there remnants right now? Yes. You know Jewish people of that faith who have come to understand the true Messiah is Jesus Christ. And that has been taking place ever since... uh, ever since Christ came on the scene. We know many Jewish people that have come to him. Okay, so we've got to take a deep breath. Now, when we read a passage that has been already fulfilled, deliverance from Babylon, we can look for the not yet fulfilled that will be fulfilled by the remnant of Israel during that millennial kingdom. A time of great joy for Israel. So let's look at this God of comfort. He's focusing now on Judah and Babylon. He wants to comfort them. In fact, he wants to comfort them so much, he says the word twice for emphasis. Comfort, oh comfort my people. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 1 and 2 comfort comfort my people says your god speak tenderly to jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the lord's hand double for all her sins god is saying here judah's time of suffering was almost over the word hard service here is a word that you use in warfare and God is saying, your captivity in Babylon was like a hardship of war. But God says that this hard service is a result of her sin when we read those passages. But God's also saying in these passages, I'm pardoning your sin. You have received double from my hand for all your sins. When I first read that, I thought, wow, God punished them twice as much as they deserved. That word received double means you received, you were punished in keeping with your sins. So he punished them justly and fairly with your sins. He's telling them now, I'm pardoning you. Now this is going to be fully realized like we just talked about. When? At the second coming of Christ. Those who turn to him in the millennium. That's when Israel's conversion And restoration will be complete. And who will be the ultimate great comfort of Israel? When God says, comfort, oh comfort my people. Isaiah tries to let him know in his book. He talks about this Messiah. He's going to suffer. But he's also going to bring glory and be glorious. And so we realize the Messiah will be the great comfort of Israel. So look on your verse sheet at Luke 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he took Jesus in his arms in the temple and he praised God and said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon held in his hands the promised comfort of Israel. And since Jesus was that promise, Jesus' cousin was the one who was supposed to prepare the way, John the Baptist, for the arrival of this comfort. Look at verse 3 in chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Israel was to prepare for the Lord's glory at the arrival of the Messiah. That is what John the Baptist was doing. That was John's task, to get them ready for the Messiah's arrival. How were they to prepare themselves? That word prepare means to remove all obstacles. So if there was some important person, a dignitary, a king, if they knew I'm going from here to here, they sent teams ahead of them to smooth out that rough path, to get rid of the rocks and the stones and prepare the way for the coming of the king. So Israel could clear the path for the coming of the Messiah by laying aside the obstacle of their sin. By their repentance, John was calling Israel, be smoothed out spiritually. So the arrival of the Lord, the Messiah, could come to the nation and rule. And we all know this didn't happen at His first coming. It will happen at His second coming. And it tells us in that verse that in the millennial kingdom, every person will see God's glorious salvation. Israel's sins will be pardoned by the compassion of Christ. And think about Judah hearing these words While they're in Babylon, or considering these words even before they go to Babylon, and they're looking in the evil faces, the cruel faces of the Babylonians that have kept them captive for 70 years. These would be words of great comfort while they suffer under the hands of the Babylonians because they would have to remember it's because of our sin that we are here. And yet, God is going to pardon us. What great words of comfort. And it made me think, oh, what a great word of comfort for me when I am suffering as a result of my own stupid sins. When I find myself in a trial because I put myself there because of sin. So on your outline, I said, in the midst of our captivity, we draw comfort in the pardon of God. If we remove the obstacles of sin to clear the road for our Father to run to us, He will bend down, put His arm, and whisper in our ear and say, I know you've fallen. I know your sin, but I will not abandon you. I call you my own. The promises I have for you, I will fulfill. What a comfort to remember those words. In fact, I don't think I could think of Anything more oppressive than knowing I'm in this situation because of my sins and I don't know what to do with it. We have a God who runs to us when we smooth that path out with our humble heart and loves us and speaks words of comfort to us. How else would you be comforted? On your outline, in the midst of captivity, we draw comfort by remembering the attributes of God. Chapter 40 begins by telling Israel to be comfort. And then remember, the whole rest of the chapter is about God speaking these glorious attributes about himself. And I thought, why? I think the reason is because when we focus on the attributes of God, our trials and our suffering just sort of grow dim in comparison to who he is. Remember the song we love and it says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I believe that's true. But we have to understand his attributes. And so even though Judah is not yet captured, God says, let me remind you of my attributes. They will bring you comfort under the hands of the Babylonians. And so he compares men. This is the place we choose to usually go when we're having trials. He compares men to himself the place we should be going when we are in the midst of our trials. Look at verse 6. A voice says, Cry out, and I said, What shall I cry? Well, cry out that all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. He's telling the people, men are temporary, like grass, flowers, they fade, they fail. And one day when Judah would be under the stern hands of the Babylonians thinking, my life is over, this is the end, these words from God would comfort them to think, this is just a weak man, this is just a fallible man. But God's words are eternal. Therefore, I know his promises he has made to us, they will come to pass. I will be delivered from captivity. I will be restored to my land. And these are comforting words to us in our trials as well. All those promises God gives us about our future, we can trust that they will come to pass. His presence His guidance, His love, His blessing, His wisdom. As we face trials today, look at Hebrews 4. We read, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then we find comfort that He's eternal because we realize one day I will be delivered from this fallen world and I will stand before His throne fully restored. Look at 2 Peter 2. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. How will we get there? I want to look at two more attributes of God. Look at verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, and let me just tell you, I, I was saying to TED, "What is Zion exactly? Is it just Judah? Is it just Israel? Is it a mountain? Is it? So we looked it up, and here's what Zion can mean: The land of Judah, a mountain of Israel, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem. So you get to take your pick. But it has to do with Israel. We know that. (laughs) You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain, you who bring good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. In these verses, in the the best translation, it's really Jerusalem that's being called to be the messenger, to get up as high on a mountain as they can so everyone can see them, everyone can hear them, and they're proclaiming to their brothers and their sisters in Judah, here is your God. Judah need not despair. God says, I will return you from Babylon with my powerful arm. But Judah need not to spare because he would return them from Babylon with his loving arm as well. This is a picture of Israel's relationship with God when he releases them from the Babylonians but also a picture of him in the millennial kingdom when God, who has used his power in judgment to spread Israel out over the whole earth, will now take that same arm in love and gather them close to himself. Healing will come because God has an arm of compassion and strength. And the really exciting thing is to think that the converted Children, the remnant of Israel will be in Jerusalem because that will be the capital of the millennial kingdom, Jerusalem. And the remnant of Israel will be there with Christ and they will be those evangelical messengers that are shouting this out to each other. Here is our God. Here is our God. What a wonderful uh, time that will be. God is a God of compassion and power. Uh, we have a pretty steep driveway. I mentioned it before because I told the story of my mom getting on a bike not too long ago and trying to ride down it. And uh, since then, we've had it paved, so it's a little better. But even when it was still rocky, in fact, at this ice storm, Ted and I finally tried to go somewhere. We got down the drive. I slid into the woods one time and was trying to get out but then we were coming back from somewhere and we just gave up and just left it diagonally in the bottom of our driveway and hiked up the hill and uh, for another day went back to get it but when our son was in middle school we still had just big stones and and the drive does this and then does this at the bottom and I remember uh, him hopping on his bike thinking he was all that taking off down the drive, making that curve, and then us listening to his screams and cries. And I happened to be outside at the time, and Ted was too, and I kind of ran to the top of the driveway, and Ted just ran right past me as fast as he could, all the way down the driveway, took that curve, and in a second he had Tyler in his arms and ran up the driveway as if he weighed nothing at all carrying him in his arms while he cried and was broken. He demonstrated both compassion and great strength at the same time. We don't want a God who's just powerful but not compassionate. And we don't want a God who's compassionate but isn't powerful. We want a father that loves us and is powerful as well. That way we need not despair when we are hurting. These verses tell us, those unbelievable verses about God being our shepherd. He carries us, not here, not here, here, close to his heart. That's how much he loves us. We need not despair. Look at John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. This is how Jesus also describes himself. So it made me think, you know, instead of telling God how he should deliver us from a particular trial or a particular suffering, we might want to just keep quiet in his arms and let him sustain us and let his mighty arm of power go before us in rest and use that time as he holds us to worship and praise and thank him. One final attribute we can consider from these next verses, and it has to do with our perspective. Did you notice Israel's perspective when we first started this lesson They were suffering some things and they said, God's forgotten us. He doesn't care. Our ways are hidden from God. And that's how we lose the right perspective in the midst of our dark days. If we meditate on the majesty of God, he will correct that poor perspective we are living with. God's answer to Judah when they told him those things, you don't care, where are you, we're hidden from you, he said, you don't know me very well. And he begins again to tell them about himself. In the rest of chapter 40, he paints himself in the most majestic ways possible in contrast to the silly gods of these other nations that are incapable of offering any help at all. He says to Judah, meditate on this. In the breadth of my hand, I have measured out the heavens. In the breadth of my hand. That is about omnipotence. He says, consider this, no one consults and enlightens me. That's about his omniscience. He says, I sit enthroned above the earth and rule and direct the world. He is our eternal ruler. And then he says, I bring out the starry host one by one and call them by name, and I sustain them. He is our creator. And we reply, why didn't I get that job I wanted? (laughs) Don't you care? Did Did you not even notice? Our perspective is so small and so narrow, the remedy is to stand back and contemplate the incredible majesty of God and trust that He is in control. And He alone can handle it. And we change our oh-so-small perspective that life is all about me and the plans that I have made. When we look at the majesty of God Those things will go away. Instead, we wait and hope on our omnipotent, omniscient ruler and creator. And that's what God says to do. Look at verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He won't grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. On your outline, in the midst of our captivity, we draw comfort also in the sovereignty of God. Those are the next word that God speaks to Judah. He's saying, hey, your future exile from Babylon is under my control. Look at verse 41, 1 through 4. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east? Calling him in righteousness to his service. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last. I am he. Now, what's going on here? In the first verse... This is a legal contest between God and the enemies of Israel. The pagan nations that worship idols. And God says, renew your strength. What he means by that is, get your best arguments ready. Because you don't have one. The islands here, they represent the remotest places of the earth. When it says um, islands and nations, he's meaning all the people in the world. He tells these people he controls history and therefore the destiny of Israel and he talks about one he would have come from the east and in chapter 20 verse 25 the north this is cyrus of persia he would fulfill and accomplish god's plans by releasing judah from babylon when cyrus would conquer judah in about 100 years from now and that's just one example of God's sovereign movement in all of history. So he's saying to the nations, hey, Israel has a sovereign God on their side. You have pieces of wood. You have pieces of gold. What do you think will happen? Can they predict the future? Can they make plans? Can they bring about? Can they thwart the plans of the sovereign God who rules the universe? Absolutely not. Wow. Judah needed to hear Those words. Babylon could not stop God's plans for Israel. I think they're comforting words for us. Even when we feel, again, uh, captured, we are in the hands of a sovereign God. Remember what King Hezekiah said last week, Judas King, when he was in the midst of his illness, and he said, surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. He learned that truth. I wrote on your outline, the trials in our lives don't interrupt God's plans for us. They are part of God's plans for us. Look at James 1. Consider the pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and this must finish its work so you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In Hebrews, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God does it for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And finally, in the midst of our captivity, we draw comfort in your outline on our calling from God. God has called your name. Hopefully that is a comfort for you when you are in the midst of some trials. God has called your name. Ephesians 1 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. I think this truth of God's sovereignty often I mean God's calling often escape the heart of Israel. So he wants to comfort them in chapter forty one. He lets the other nations know your gods are nothing. And then he turns to Israel and say, Have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten who you are? Do you ever really think about placing your faith in some pagan idol? Look at verse 8 of 41. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. What does he specifically call Israel here? First of all, a servant. That was highly honored by God. We know that's true because of Jesus in the upper room washing the disciples' feet. He said, this is great in the sight of God, a servant. How was Israel God's servant? They were to advance the kingdom of God into a dark, godless world. They were his chosen from among all people. They were to be holy, represent a holy God. They were his friends, descendants of Abraham. And to be called a friend of God is even greater than to be called a servant of God. Because it means you have a greater faithfulness. And then he says, you were taken. I love that. It means they didn't deserve anything. They didn't earn it. One person put it this way. They were grasped in electing grace. And I love that. Israel was grasped in electing grace. It was God's glorious gift to them. They were taken from the four corners of the earth. This probably is referring to in the millennial kingdom again when God restores Israel and brings them to himself. So what has God called you? Servant? Chosen? Friend? Taken? Taken? All of those things, we can take comfort in our calling as well. Look at verse 10. These words he spoke to Judah about his calling to them is also our calling in a verse for us. So put your name in there. So do not fear. Put your name. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There are some temptations we face when we feel captured. haven't spoken a lot about the idols. It's easy for me to read those verses about the idols and think, you know, I haven't whittled an idol in a while. And so it just, this just doesn't apply to me. But as I began to read over this, I thought, okay, these are passages about God trying to comfort Judah in the midst of their captivity Why does he have all these idol passages in there? And then I realized he wants to make sure they go to him for comfort and not to these useless idols of Babylon and these other nations. So he wants to make sure they return and go to him. So then I thought, oh, maybe I do whittle a little idol when I'm uncomfortable and unhappy about something. And here's how I do that. We are tempted when dark days come to seek temporary comfort. What might that look like in Judah's day? If you were rich, you would find a craftsman and he would quickly construct an image and you would cover it in gold and silver chains. And really, you did that to try to keep it from falling over. But if you were rich, that was a good thing. Your idols didn't fall over too much. You had them wrapped in silver and gold. But if you were poor and you felt like, oh, I need some comfort here, you would bring a craftsman a little piece of wood and hope it was enough. And then you'd put it on your mantle and you'd try to nail it down so that every time you walked past and prayed to it, it wouldn't topple over. But one day they would walk by and they would see it had fallen to the floor. I thought it was interesting. In these verses we read, they kept saying, so the idols would not topple, would not topple, would not topple, because they toppled, because they were nothing. They had no power at all. What might this look like today? A temporary comfort would look like different things for different people. Of course, drinking, drugs, sex, television, video games, money, money. Shopping, you fill in the blank, a temporary comfort, and a steady dose of those temporary things will make our whole world come toppling down. Then we're tempted to pursue false comfort from others. This is what the nations did when confronted with the power of God and they were um, realizing the approach of Cyrus. Look at verse uh, 5 in chapter 41. This is when they know about Cyrus approaching. The islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer spurs him on, who strikes the anvil, and he says of the welding, it is good. And then, of course, he nails down the idol so it will not topple. They form this unhealthy alliance to spur each other on into the wrong direction. They make more idols, and they compliment each other on pushing each other into the wrong direction. And if you continue to find encouragement from people in the wrong direction, soon they lost sight of what would be the right direction to go. I've mentioned before one time being in an airport. I lived outside of Chicago, and you couldn't go to O'Hare Airport without the Hare Krishna grabbing you and encircling you and chanting around you. And so one time this girl was doing that with me, and I said, you know, I just, I just can't trust in, in your God or whatever it is you believe. And she said, why not? George Harrison does. <laughs> There's an example of gaining confidence from the lies of others. Even though they drove nails deep into the idols, false confidence eventually topples over because it is not real. And so how are we tempted in the same way? I don't know about you. I'm tempted to form alliances that may not be godly here. When I'm hurting and in struggles and trials, and I'm not talking about godly counsel here, I'm talking about the group you want to gather around so they can hear your side of the story and encourage you on it, and they can dislike the people that you want to blame for putting you where you are, and then you listen to their sad story, and we all feel sorry for each other, and we form this unhealthy alliance, and we don't know what we're doing because while we're comforting each other in the middle, we don't realize it, we're whittling a little ice that sits right in the center of the room because we're trying to be comforted by each other's lies and encouragement and spurring on into the wrong things and not looking for comfort in the only one who is made to comfort us. And finally, we're tempted to create our own comfort. We don't have time to read chapter 44, but it would make for good material for a stand-up comic listening to the words of these idols and about these idols. Uh, First, we see a man makes an idol, and while he's doing it, he grows weary and tired and has to rest. What's the point there? How can a weak man make something so mighty that we're supposed to worship it? But then, the best story is about the person who's decided, which is a lot what idol worship is, they take the gifts from God, meant to point to Him, and they give honor to the gifts instead of to the giver. So a man goes out, chops down a tree which he has used for shade. Now he uses it to keep warm. Then he cooks his meal on it. And then he takes a little piece of the leftover log and bows down and worships it. Half a log. I can see a man saying to his wife, Any leftovers tonight, honey? We might want to worship them later on. <laughs> God says, this person can't save himself or even say to himself, is not this log, this thing in my right hand, a lie? We do that all the time. The world does that. The world that does not know God. How many books do we go to a bookstore and see, this will change your life? You just read these things. That book was written to comfort us. How many churches are out there that talk about every subject except our sin and the redemption that God offers? That sermon was written to comfort someone. And how many times do we tell ourselves lies about our situation in a desperate way to attempt to comfort ourselves? And God would say to us, you can't save yourself. You can't even say to yourself, this thing in my right hand, this book I am reading this television show I am watching, this message I am listening to, this lie I have decided to believe. I can't even tell. It's a lie. There's only one place to go for comfort when we feel captured. I want you to read the words to me at the bottom of your outline. You ready? Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Let's pray. Father, you are our shepherd. We shall not be in want. You make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside quiet waters. You restore our soul. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't fear evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, that's what comforts us. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.